This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone. I'm John. And this is Stephanie. And welcome to Borrowing Brilliance, a new segment of Dragon Mind. In this segment, we borrow brilliance from some of the world's most insightful minds using their ideas to better ourselves as game masters, players, and people. In today's episode, Stephanie poses the question, if I were given the keys to the D&D kingdom, how would I design the game's next iteration? Well, let's find out together. Hi, John. Are you feeling brilliant today? Oh, that's a (laughs) no. (laughs) We'll see if I can get there. Cool. All right. So we'll start right in with our three questions. So I'm going to let you go first because I actually have one answer for all three of them. Uh, Although I did have one answer for all three, but then I heard something brilliant and fun today that I also wanted to share. Um, so I, I have a, like a little, a little side thing too, but I'm still going to let you go first. So the, our first question is what are you reading, digesting, absorbing currently? Cause there's many ways to learn other than just reading. So I will have, you know, I read the four agreements. Uh, yeah. Cause I was very embarrassed in Len 17 when I had to say no, I did start, uh, start with why by Simon Sinek. So I'm not very far into it, but I actually, there, there's an excerpt from the book. I'm going to let be one of my brilliance things later on. I have like a brilliance backlog now. Simon Sinek is always a, a good one to read. And what habit are you working on improving currently? So I think it's still sticking with the move one. I find that when I move more frequently, it helps the fuel one. Uh, I find that the opposite doesn't, is much more difficult for me personally, where if I try to eat healthier, that doesn't make me want to move more. But the more I move, the better I feel when I eat something that's healthy. And to me, there are a few indicators that the habit is working. Like today, you know, we had an ice cream party at the dojo and the ice cream, not only was I like, it was, it wasn't a battle of, oh, I shouldn't really have that. You know, I I should be good. It was, I could already feel my stomach like going Ugh, and like zits popping out from just the thought of all that processed sugar. So it wasn't even a contest. It was just, nah. Now that being said, I'm probably going to have cheesecake later and ruin the whole thing. But <laughs> the, the idea just being that there have been a few times throughout the week, especially where I've been offered something a little less healthy and there's just not been an interest for it. So, and I, it's always a cool indicator to be on the right track. What's hard is to now stay on that right track over and over again, because it's so much easier to convince yourself it's okay just this time, the longer you keep the streak up. So it's it's going to be an interesting one. That is incredibly true. And it definitely is something that accumulates over time. Like it always fascinates me when I'm being really good about not eating a lot of processed sugar carrots taste like candy. They're so amazing because as far as vegetables go, they have a lot more sugar in them, like carbs in them than, than other vegetables. So they are such an amazing treat. 
uh, when you're not having all the processed sugar, when you've worked that out of your taste buds, uh, it, it can be amazing how yummy, healthy, unprocessed food is when you're not distracting your system uh, with, with all the processed junk. Um, and then the other thing, you know, that you just mentioned that is very, very true is sometimes it's easier to find like, like a gateway habit, you know, find the thing that you, you acclimate to a little easier, or you, you, you know, can start in with a little easier and then let that lead you to your more challenging habit. And that is actually a totally different conversation about the, the compass thing that we use for our momentum learning system and the move, think, connect, feel, empower habits. That might be an interesting conversation to have in a future podcast. Uh, but yes, yeah. Figuring out which of those move, think, connect, fuel, you know, which one will lead you to help you with the, the ones you struggle with. Cool. All right. So the last one is what is something that has struck you as brilliant since we last talked? And I think we have both been noticing that this was my hope with this question was it would start to pick up on all of the fun little brilliant things that are out there in the world. It was the question was to open the curiosity and we are both experiencing, you know, having a, a backlog of too many fun, cool, brilliant things to talk about. But what's the one that you picked for today? The brilliant thing that, and I have a monologue prepared for this, is that everybody loves zombies. Um, that was a video by Matt Colville, who is a longtime D&D tube content creator who has a lot of very cool conceptual advice for game masters in making the most out of the games that they run. And it was actually sent to me by Ian. And the point that Ian was trying to make while sending it was just to give an idea of the value of good versus evil conflicts and listening to this video of why everybody loves zombies really. And, and the fact that I was also editing our second borrowing brilliance, which was on the function of religion. It made me like it opened the floodgates to a lot of thoughts. And the first being that when we talked about the function of religion, one of the things that we really dove into a little bit was the relaxation in a game of knowing you're the good guys and there are bad guys and you defeat the bad guys. It's a very clear good versus evil dynamic. And Matt Colville goes into such an extreme as to say, it feels good to kill the bad guys and it should feel good to kill the bad guys because it's a fantasy. And that's why zombies are such a fun enemy because there's no moral quandary of should we kill the zombies? It's it's a very obvious conflict going on. It made me realize one of the things that you you mentioned in our function of religion episode was just that I was kind of critical toward default D&D religion. And one of the things that I felt I was missing in that conversation, having listened and edited it after the fact, was just that we talked a lot about how religion can be a sticky subject, depending on the individuals in your playgroup. And frankly, I think that something we touched on, but could have explained better, was how D&D's default storytelling use of religion, I find is very unhelpful. In many officially printed adventures uh, or settings or storylines, religion is used as a storytelling device that's used to set up the stories, heroes and villains, which can lead to a lot of uncomfortable world building assumptions 
that I personally think leads to harmful real world thinking. An example being that by default in Faerun, which is Sword Coast Adventures Guide, orcs are bad because their god Groomsh is bad. Groomsh was a bad god. He created orcs, which are just inherently bad. But also the orcs of D&D are human-like. They have feelings. They have families. But the players are just positioned to assume that they're evil and you can kill an orc because it's an orc and it's always evil. And in a lot of games that I was running when I was first DMing, even professionally, there would definitely be times where I would set up a combat and the players would immediately agree it's okay to kill these goblins because they're just goblins. And it really bothered me because it cut away the ability for the players to question, are these actually enemies? Are, have they been violent towards us? I, I distinctly remember a session that I ran that I think you were even a part of. You weren't one of the players that did this, but one of the players said, oh, these are just Duragar. And they started by casting a fireball spell and just murdering this whole clan of Duragar. Because the assumption was Duragar pray to a bad god, and because of that, we know Duragar are evil. And the way the module was set up was, no, these Duragar could be fought if you acted hostily to them. But in the module, it was written that these were special Duragar that could be negotiated with. This doesn't mean that I don't think there should be a clear, unambiguous good versus evil conflict at the heart of most games, because... Like you mentioned, Stephanie, like if you're constantly questioning whether these enemies are worth killing or saving, it can be exhausting over a period of time. Um, so having like black and white conflicts can lead to more relaxing, enjoyable games. I just don't want religion being part of that conflict. In fact, there are a lot of D&D gods that are quote unquote good aligned that just don't behave that way. So one example of that is the drow elves. Really, if you read from Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes, the history of the drow, the elves came about because Groomsh, who was the orc god, cut Coralon and his blood made the elves. Really gross. Some of the elves prayed to Coralon. Some of the elves were just confused and they asked Coralon, what do you want us to do? And Coralon, as a chaotic good deity, said, eh, do what you want. So those elves instead looked to another goddess, Lulth, who was not evil at the time. But Corlon was like, you're going to follow her. And so he cursed them to dwell underground and be sensitive to sunlight and suffer underground till the end of time. But Corlon is the good god, because if you look at the table, it says good. So to me, the actions and behaviors set up by the official material conflicted with the assumption that this religious deity is a good deity. And again, I'm talking purely in the canon of this fantasy world. And it's just one of many examples of how D&D default assumptions use religion to set up good guy versus bad guy conflicts. And what I saw happening at my tables was an us versus them mentality that was really unhealthy. And frankly, it, like, it just really bothered me personally. So in terms of religion, this is why in my games, I largely remove the overt religion from them so that if players are interested in religion, it's not creating this us versus them mentality. It's meant to be a very personal thing 
that I, as the DM and they, as the player get to explore for their character. And I don't even really bring it up a whole lot unless a player specifically wishes to explore it. And so that's why everybody loves zombies. A lot of times when I run my good guy versus bad guy stories, uh, they're usually elementals, constructs, zombies, monsters that are, are very overtly harmful. And if I want to get morally ambiguous, and I've messed this up too, that's when I'll start to introduce creatures like the Fae and humanoid. So it's almost like as soon as I set up that enemy, it's almost a code to my players as this is going to be more morally ambiguous because they're bandits versus they're zombies. We know we can kill them and feel pretty good about it. So this isn't always the case, but I found that more often than not, it is. So that one video sent me on that train of thought and that's my spiel for the day. (laughs) Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, I wonder if that's a holdover from the more like simple blissful time of like the nineties. Cause I, I recently reread the Redwall series, uh, which was, is by Brian Jacks and it's like a fantasy and it's, mice and woodland creatures and you know this whole little fantasy land going on in moss flower woods and it's very cute um but rereading it now in today's day and age you know over the last couple years the mice and the moles and the rabbits and the badgers they're all good and then the rats and the weasels and the ferrets and those type of animals are always bad and it is this very obvious, uh, like essentially race oriented, good, bad thing. And there's a couple of times where even like a, a, a weasel is raised with by the good creatures and still ends up being bad. Like it can't move past its, its nature. And it was fine in the nineties. Like that was just sort of the way literature and storylines went but we have evolved societally and culturally and recognize that that is like you're saying, it's kind of a toxic mentality to allow even in, in our fantasy realms, you know, and, and now rereading it, I'm like, Ooh, this is a little uncomfortable. This is a little less evolved than I remember it being. It's a little less fun with this in it. Yeah. And just one last thing, cause I do want to hear how your book have it brilliance align to defend Tolkien for a second because a lot of times you can trace these evil orcs back to Lord of the Rings the reason I'm not as upset with that specifically like Tolkien orcs is because you see in the movies and in the books orcs are born from an evil source of hate so like they're they're elves that have been corrupted by dark magic that's a very specific history not just this is just a nice orc farmer and bam, kill the orcs. So they're, the circumstances behind their origin story is very different. It makes them Tolkien orcs to me anyway, and I could be wrong. So if, if you want to at me in the comments, please educate me. But from my understanding, they operate more like say demons or devils in D&D mythology, which are supernaturally evil and, but also have very limited behaviors. Whereas humanoids in D&D settings, like orcs, goblins, one of the things that defines the humanoid creature type is their ability to choose and their ability and their their sentience and their sapience and all those things. And 
it bothers me when you just assume that these creatures are evil when they could be so much more. But I'm also uh, cool with demons for the most part being evil, usually because in D&D mythology, demons and devils get there because of the choices they made when they were mortals. And even though they're now immortals, it's not they were just a demon, so they're evil. It's, it's they did things to get there. And so that's why I think there's a difference there. So that's just where I'm at with it. And I just wanted to include this post the religion episode to just, that's why I'm so critical. Yeah, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. So what have you been reading, Stephanie? <gasps> Done. I've been geeking out. And my one answer to all three questions is Zettelkasten. Uh, so I uh, I've been listening to Cal Newport's podcast, which I've mentioned before. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but he tends to have a lot of it, it tends to be very dense where there's a lot of cool ideas. So I, I've been drawing a lot from it. But he mentioned a book that he was reading uh, called How to Take Smart Notes by Sanki Ahrens. I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce his name. And the book is about this note-taking method called the Zettelkasten, which is German because it was created by a, a German guy, uh, Nicholas Luhmann. And it simply means, uh, so Zettel is like slip and Kasten is box. So it's a slip box. And it's basically slips of paper that you put in a box. So the analog way to do it that people usually use now is uh, index cards is a, a really easy way to go. But in Nicholas Lumen's settle cast in there's, there's cards, but then I guess you could also find like, you know, if you flipped over a note, you'd see like a bill or like, you know, his kids would have drawn a picture on the, you know, and he just found it and scribbled a note on it. Nicholas Lumen was an academic who ended up writing something like 59 books and thousands of articles and he was just the, he just cranked out content academic content very dense academic content and he attributes it all to the slip box to the Zettelkasten and it, it's anytime you come across to something that's interesting you write it down on a note card and you add it to your slip box and then as you have subsequent thoughts questions or find other related facts you simply put them in the Zettelkasten behind the notes that they're related to. So if you think of how we're usually taught to take notes, compartmentalized by subject, or you're taught to highlight or maybe even write in the margins of a book, which oh, that's always hurt me to write in a book. I love books and I don't want to. And also I'm a different person every time I read a book. You know, I was a different person five years ago. So I don't want to, I don't want to entomb that version of myself in a book, I want to allow there to be an evolution and not be distracted by the thoughts I had five years ago if I go back and read that book again. Uh, but we're taught to take these very linear compartmentalized notes that are then very hard to use because then if you wanna go create a piece of content or write a blog post or make a YouTube video or write an essay or an article for something, you're starting from, okay, I wanna write about this thing and now you have to try to figure out where to pull all of the different resources from. Where with the slip box, you just make notes on anything that you find interesting. You allow them to accumulate, organized by relevance to each other. And then at some point you're gonna hit like this critical mass 
where you almost have a half written piece of content. You basically have a rough draft and now you just spread out the cards and you figure out how to work them together and, and you're right into the writing process. So it's like this, you're, you're always writing, but you're allowing it to unfold. Um, and I found it very fascinating and there's definitely a lot out there. Um, there's programs like Rome, R-O-A-M, Rome uh, was the one that Cal Newport mentioned using. And I could definitely see where digital is helpful. Uh, I personally have been playing with the analog version because there's a lot of value to writing. And I also find when I can physically see the different puzzle pieces and you know, if it's on index cards, you can spread them out on a table or on the floor and you can start to make connections and see how things work. And I'm still kind of figuring it out, but I've been having a lot of fun. And I feel I've always wanted to take notes and, and just have a record of cool things that I hear or connections I make, but they always just felt like they got lost in notebooks. I do a workshop, I take all these notes and then the binders in a closet and I've never touched the stuff again, but it's because how do you know when the information in that binder is going to be relevant to some other workshop you were doing or a podcast you were listening to? So with this method, each thought is on its own individual card, and then they just accumulate over time in little related pockets. And it, it, it just, I'm excited. I've been playing with starting to build my own. So that's where kind of the habit comes in is, is practicing taking smart notes like the book. Um, and also it just struck me as, as brilliant. And I'm, I'm very excited by the idea. It's also super geeky, nerdy, intellectual kind of thing. Um, and I, I wonder what the applications would be if for someone that's really into D and D, cause this is definitely more, seems like a non-fiction-y sort of thing. But if someone's listening to this podcast on borrowing brilliance, they're probably coming at it from a, a headier place. So if you want a way to collect all of the brilliance you see around you in a way where you might actually be able to use it in the future, uh, I would check out Zettelkasten. Pretty cool. Well, and I know that we were going to have a conversation on deep work in the future. I almost want to read this book before doing that because I think they work well together, possibly. I know one of the things I'm interested in because Ian and I collaborate a lot together and just bounce ideas off each other is I know he's very interested in developing his custom setting. And one thing I hear a lot about is our DMS that prep a lot. Like they just spend so much time prepping. And to me, it's not about the prep. It's about the efficiency and the result of the prep that you're doing. And having been someone that's created a custom setting for themselves over years, there have been so many times where I've been like, speaking of which, orcs. Oh, I have this idea for orc culture. But the way that a linear reference document is made, it took a lot of time for me to have that information coalesce in a certain way. And if I wanted to find it, it takes a while. Whereas this method sounds genius for when you have those little ideas that you can then categorize later. And then by the time you've got a lot of the, like you said, the first draft, I think that DMs who are trying to pull at so many threads and so many different categories and stuff, sometimes you just get struck with inspiration 
And I really think that this is a great way to make the most of your time in prep rather than setting aside time, sitting down, taking 45 minutes to get in the headspace, trying to organize everything, and then feeling guilty because you haven't gotten enough done that you think you should get done. Like, it's just so interesting how this is such a little thing, really, but also it's such a profound thing. I share your excitement for Zettelkasten. <laughs> yeah, you just heard about it too. Um, so yeah, there are, there's a lot of stuff out there that about the digital side of things. The guy that I found, I hope I'm going to say his name right, Scott Shepard, S-C-H-E-P-E-R. He is really big on an, the analog Zettelkasten, which he refers to as the anti-net. Um, so he seems to be a really good resource, and he's actually writing a book on Zettelkasten. He's done a lot of research. He started his Zettelkasten to write about something else that was psychology and a couple of other sociology or something like that. Um, but then he found as his Zettelkasten evolved, the thing that was really capturing his attention, the thing that was accumulating the most notes that were relevant and related to each other was the methodology behind Zettelkasten itself and all of the psychology that goes into it. And John, I do think you, the book, How to Take Smart Notes, I do think you'd be very interested in it, there was a lot of cool stuff about the way our brain works and biases um, from survivorship bias to my side bias to confirmation bias and several other effects. Uh, and they, they were really catching my attention. And I was writing notes down and putting them in my Zettelkasten. Uh, <laughs> but it was just, it was a lot of cool stuff about how to break out of the patterns that we don't even realize our brain falls into. Um, so we'll we'll stop there and maybe this ends up being a podcast further down the road um, because there were a lot of nifty things. And then because of the structure of the Zettelkasten, I was connecting it to things that I have heard from other influential people, other brilliant people in my life. Um, so it was it was really neat. But I'm I'm glad you're excited by it, too, because. I felt really dorky with my little box of index cards, but I think it's super cool. I, I love creative work and I've always been so frustrated that I couldn't, I felt like I was missing a piece of how to make content come out into the world. And I feel like this is something that's going to allow it to happen naturally over time in the right way, whether that ends up being a book or something, you know, or a blog. I don't know. I thought about doing all of these things, but I never felt like I had enough to, if I started something, I didn't feel like I could keep it going. But now I feel like there's, you know, this is the way to organize stuff and then just see where the, the, you know, the cookie crumbs lead you. I like how many times you've been like, this is like a nerdy intellectual thing and you're doing a and d podcast. Like, <laughs> I wonder who our audience might be. Would they be offended by identifying as intellectual nerdy types. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I feel like we've gone really long on this, but I just want to say my one other brilliant thing that I heard today on Jim Jeffries. I don't know about that podcast, which I think is hilarious. And I always end up learning something, but one of the most recent episodes was on squids and they were talking about how those so squids squirt ink, right? It's like an octopus because they're in the same category. And apparently they can also mix their ink with mucus. 
And then they kind of like bleh out a blab of mucusy ink that is roughly the same size as themselves. And they'll, they'll spit out like eight of them to distract a predator like a shark. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's mirror image. The squids could cast mirror image. It was hilarious. So I had to mention that since we are on a D&T podcast, I thought it was too, too amusing to not throw in there. But we should get to our, our main topic now. So John, are you ready? I gave you another homework assignment. This is sort of like the seven baby steps where I had this random trail of borrowed brilliance. Uh, so I am, fun fact, also a NASCAR fan. I was listening to a NASCAR podcast where a NASCAR reporter asks drivers uh, 12 questions. So it's the Jeff Gluck's podcast. And he he asked for a question. He asked Carson Hosevar for a question to ask Dale Earnhardt Jr. And Carson Hosevar's question was, if Dale were given the essentially the keys to the kingdom to make changes in NASCAR, what what changes would he want to see if he could pick two? So that sparked me to want to ask you the question, if you were given the keys to the kingdom to come, like to organize sixth edition, what would you do just on a macro level? We're not gonna go too deep into the weeds, but just on a macro level, if you if they came to you and said, we love your Dragon Mind podcast. We think that you are brilliant and we want you to uh, to help us construct sixth edition. What would you do? Uh, so we'll start in the gameplay category. And I'm curious how you would handle combat and using abilities. And we can kind of move through these different categories, but the 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 macro things I was thinking of are action economy, spell casting, conditions, and that might lead into like monsters and creatures because all of those things kind of interrelate to each other. Um, so starting with action economy, how would you handle that for sixth edition? What would you want to see? To be honest, I really like the bones of fifth edition. I think that the simple action resolutions and everything are the reason why, first of all, it's selling so well. And second of all, why it's so accessible to so many people. I love having a movement, action, and reaction. In terms of action economy, the only thing that kind of bothers me is bonus actions. And it's not even the idea of bonus actions. It's just what bonus actions are sometimes used for and how some classes or subclasses get bonus actions and some don't. But even that can really change the power dynamics from character to character. And you and I have both played characters where we do some big spell as our action. That's the end of the turn. And we're like, oh, it didn't work. And then you've got some min maxed martial character next to you. That's like bonus action, extra attack, 15 damage. They can hit a bunch of times their action and they, they just feel more useful. So the reason why I think it's good to start with gameplay is because when we get into the nitty gritty of things like character classes and that kind of stuff, they all reference this core gameplay economy. But one example is two weapon fighting is treated as a bonus action. And because of that, the bonus action is so weak compared to other bonus actions you can do. Nobody wants to two weapon fight. So 
if I were looking from a pure action economy perspective, I would really start looking at introducing new bonus actions that kind of level the playing field to make each character feel equally compelling to play. That actually leads me into the spell casting, which I noticed that you uh, you mentioned. Again, spell casting is fine. The only adjustment is they've got this rule about if you cast a bonus action spell, the only spell you can cast with your action is a cantrip, which is this very convoluted language that the convoluted part doesn't prevent weird power abuses in terms of the mechanics. So you start seeing a lot of weird, funky builds of spellcasters taking two levels of fighter so they can action surge. Honestly, just simpler, cleaner language that still emphasizes deep gameplay. I think those would be the first things to address. So I definitely agree on the bonus actions. I feel like every all the classes that I lean towards don't have bonus actions. And I just end up feeling like I get one chance to roll the die and I am crossing my fingers that it works. And it's just such a letdown when it's such a buzzkill when you, yeah, you have that martial character that's doing rolling the dice 17 times and then you roll it once and you're like, Oh, I suck again. Yay. You know, and you just feel like you're just sitting there passively while everybody else gets to play the game. So I would definitely agree with that. And I'm curious for the spell casting. Are you saying you would basically make it so that anything that would be cast as a bonus action just wouldn't be powerful enough to make a like the rule that currently exists even necessary so it's just the bonus action is simply that it's like 25 to 50 percent of a regular action and and then the actions are the big things that you do does that make sense it does the one thing about a lot of these conceptual questions is it really comes down to play testing because a lot of times you have great ideas and they don't survive <laughs> play testing so it would either be that or just instead saying you get one leveled spell per turn. So that way that would prevent characters from taking levels of fighter to weirdly circumvent the convoluted language. I would just simplify the language so that it's easily understood and easily adhered to. So I have a, a question that that maybe you I am not as immersed in D&D as you are and as probably some of our your listeners are. Um, but I've always thought of the bonus, like a bonus action is, is like a minor action. And then your action is like a major action. Um, is that, is that accurate? I really wish it was because when you read about actions and bonus actions, that's what it should be. This so is that what you would, is that what you would shift towards is like a, a more simplistic minor major action. So on your turn, you can move, you can do a minor action, a major action. And then sometime during the round, you have a reaction. Yeah. Yes. The more, as we're talking it through, I think that's, I like that system better. That's kind of like the fourth edition system. You know, we didn't play it very long, but that's the edition we both started with or first tried. Honestly, as I'm thinking about it, the only one that really ruins it is the sorcerer because the sorcerer has a feature which allows you to change the casting time of any spell to a bonus action. So suddenly sorcerers alone and you see sorcerers getting multi-class for this reason, can really manipulate their action economy to pull off a lot of big shenanigans. And to me, the reason the warlock is not a compelling class is because 
a 20th level warlock is never going to compete with a character with two levels of warlock and 18 levels of sorcerer that just sorcerer's ability to change the casting time of an action to a bonus action in a lot of ways makes other options just worse and from my experience at the table it's just one of those things that it unfortunately for one player to feel super powerful being a sorcerer it makes a lot of other players feel a lot weaker and to me i think that creates unhealthy dynamics at the table and you start seeing the same kind of builds over and over again all right so basically for action economy and spell casting the the central pillar that you would build around is major action minor action and then yeah. the spells would match up to that appropriately based on the class and you would make it so that everyone feels like they have equal playing time because i think that's one of the big differences is when when one person gets to when they have a more complex class and they get to if their turn takes five to ten to fifteen minutes depending on how unprepared they are and you're playing a simpler character that's I, like i'm a barbarian so i roll to hit and then i'm done you know and my turn takes 30 seconds and theirs takes 10 minutes it's a little bit frustrating so by everyone having minor major movement look three m's it's it's all neat and packaged i like it i i like that too actually minor major movement that it's clean one thing I'll say is because I also listen to a lot of optimizing channels, one that I shout out frequently and will do again is Trant Monk, who does a really good job at looking the real at the realistic math in the game. So if you look at something like, say, a wizard, that's a good example of a class where you just cast your one big spell and you roll the dice and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. In the math of the game, it's balanced to not have a reliable bonus action because what those spells can do are sometimes so big that to now add bonus action spells on top of it would just make it obviously more powerful than anything else. And I think that you can still give it a little minor action to do, not another big spell to cast maybe, but just kind of something like uh, you can move an extra five feet if you use your bonus. Something like not that maybe, maybe not that specifically, but like that kind of thing. because. Again, I think what you said is spot on. It's yes, as a wizard, I just did a big thing. Yes, mathematically, it may be more impactful than a lot of other things. Also, my turn goes by in a snap. All right, so we got our action economy down. What about, is there anything with conditions? What would you, how would you build conditions in sixth edition? I think conditions are fine. And the only thing that irritates me is that Wizards of the Coast refuses to add to the conditions list so for example you have the two-page spread in the player's handbook of these are all the conditions and then you have certain things in the game like surprised which acts as a condition but is not considered a condition so a lot of times you'll hear ian and i and adam on dm shower thoughts talk about there are certain things in the game that are like quote unquote unofficial conditions because they act exactly like conditions do. There's times where it's like, oh, this creature is wounded. When wounded in this way, blah, blah, blah. It's like, why not just say it gets the wounded condition? And maybe if you have a Xanathar's or a Tasha's that expands on the rules, these are additional conditions that you can play with. 
So I do understand that it can get really convoluted. So if you look at a game like Pathfinder first or second edition, they have like five pages of all of the different conditions and it's very systematic and very dense. And I think it would be much clearer to say this is a condition than to treat it like a condition, but pretend it's not because it didn't fit on that two page spread. Right. So basically if something has a standardized effect, then it needs to be standardized in the conditions list. So it's just making sure as you set things up in character, you know, the uh, class abilities and action economy and all that stuff, if there is a specific type of condition or effect referenced, that then has, you know, it, it there's a, a clean place where everything is listed to reference so that you don't end up arguing over what it actually means and what the effects are. Yeah, I would say that's one of the only downsides to fifth edition that Pathfinder actually has it beat on, which is just that sometimes they try to be so story centric or flavor centric in the way they write their text that it can be unclear if this is a systematic term or like a storytelling term. Pathfinder, as much as I can rag on it, universally pretty accepted as having a much more well-organized handbook for players. So I, I think that would be something that I would implement as well if I were given the keys to the kingdom. Yeah, so you can have, if D&D wants to have less conditions, it just needs to limit the effects of spells and abilities to those conditions and not, like you're saying, not allow there to be this gray area that confuses things. All right, so the final thing for the, the gameplay category what would you build monsters and creatures around what would be kind of your central pillar or or core principles anything in that area i think the core thing i would build monsters around and i still build my monsters around this in my home games and everything is what's the story of the fight and what are the mechanical gimmicks that are overt for the players to exploit For example, one of the design trends I notice in Monsters in 5th edition is the higher in level you get, they get a lot of resistances, and the game becomes, can we figure out which damage types it's not resistant to? And watching players interact with it, a lot of times players just get frustrated because it's something like, I cast a fire spell. Well, it's resistant to that. It only takes half damage. And then I cast a cold spell. It only takes half damage. And then every now and again, you get someone that's like, I do radiant damage. And it's like, oh, it's not resistant to that. So everyone try to use your radiant abilities. That is less compelling, I've found after playing a bunch than saying the monster takes normal force damage, but you dealt radiant damage and that deals double. That's a feature I think that's underutilized in fifth. And if I were to create a sixth, that would be something I'd really lean into, which is This monster has this certain gimmick, or if you deal it lightning damage, it doesn't necessarily deal double damage, but it reduces its speed to this monster because this monster has this specific kind of thing, or you're fighting a big snake monster. If you cast an ice spell on it, it causes it to be easier to hit because now it can't wriggle as quickly because it's cold blooded. So Rather than just saying, ah, it's it's resistant to a bunch of damage types, it's resistant to a bunch of conditions, try to find the one that works. It's more about understanding the description of the monster, giving it strengths that make sense, but also vulnerabilities and weaknesses that make sense. I like where you're going with this 
this gimmick idea. And I'm curious if you would kind of like conditions are their own separate list. Would you have, you're calling it a gimmick, but basically what you're saying is there's just certain attributes to the monster that match the monster. Would you set it up so that the, the DMs guide has the list of monsters and maybe their, their basic abilities, but then there's, for lack of a better word, we'll call them gimmicks as a separate list and DMs can pair them because I, what I notice is the most metagaming happens when we're fighting a big bad and we know it's going to be a tough fight. One of the first things that I do is turn to you as a player and try to ask you because you have them all memorized because you're so into this. I try to ask you and we, it's so hard not to metagame. And I can't imagine if you know what it's actually weak to, how do you not play with that knowledge? So now if you have this standardized list of, of attributes of gimmicks, whatever, and then you have your standardized list with stats for your monsters, and now you just pair them based on the story. So you have a mind flayer that lives in a cold climate, so you give it some cold cl stuff. But then if you have a mind flayer that lives in the desert, you add some of the, the heat gimmicks to it. So you have different categories. And now there's there are still known set things, but the DM gets to pair them up based on the storyline. Yes. I'm going to go off for a minute. Oh boy. <laughs> the John rant, because I, as you said, this is where we get the most metagamey. I can imagine there's a whole set of potential players that are listening to this or DMs clutching their proverbial pearls. <gasps> How dare you metagame that ruins the immersion. And the reason for that behavior is because first of all, we care about our characters and honestly, it's a trust thing. Like combat is the part of play where if you're not going to act on intelligent knowledge, your character could die and you lose the fun of that story. So first of all, calm down, because I do think that there is a place for intelligent reasoning, because I've also played in tables that do the opposite, where let's say we're using your example of the mind flayer living in the cold. This is an Arctic climate. It seems to have adjusted to it. Well, I do cold damage anyway, because my character wouldn't know. And so a lot of times I've been at tables where there is a worship of ignorance of the monster to the point that we're making foolish decisions without a reason for it. It's the reason why a lot of my characters, I'll intentionally give them higher intelligence scores to justify narratively why they can reason that, oh, this monster has adjusted to their climate. Let's try this kind of strategy based on the description. And I do think that to think of monsters, not in terms of what the stat block is, but what are the adjustments we make based on the context of its environment, context of its story, and really the main way our players are going to interact and fight with it. I think that becomes a much more compelling game and actually ends up in much more compelling stories. I think that a lot of times DMs love the twist and revealing things to the players to the point that they start to resent players if they intelligently figure out the twist beforehand just based on context clues. So again, this is kind of rant John coming out because I've had so many 
conversations fighting against the worship of ignorance in combat that it just like it rubs me the wrong way. And I find that combats are much more interesting when there's a description. You're making intelligent choices based on the description. And then you are both mechanically and narratively rewarded for being intelligent. Yeah, I'm not good at playing dumb. So if I know, if I already know the answer to the question, it feels really uncomfortable to try to pretend that. And and I don't know, that's just, that's not, because it is a game. So it's it's interesting for me personally, I I love the role-playing part, but then once we get into the combat part, it's really hard not to go into board game mode of, of you know, it becomes this mathematical game that's more about the strategy rather than the role playing and i think that's a that's kind of the yin yang of dnd is the combat to me has always felt like the board game portion and then when you're not in combat that's more the the fantasy creative portion of it and obviously they speak to each other the the yin yang has that dot you know on either side but if you're if you're in a a combat situation that is turn-based like a board game and it's stat-based like a board game and there's there's rules like a board game and then you're trying to insert poor strategy because you're trying to pretend like you don't know something that's just too that seems too complex to me so if you had it where the dm again it's all structured but where the dm can play with it with banks to the river established by the guide. Now you take out there's, it's just like, there's still the potential for metagaming, but it's off of like context clues, you know? And, and that's the whole point of the role-playing part is to you're given this context and you have to figure out how to work within it. So I think it matches better. Um, and I would, I, it's come up several times. I would love to do a podcast about metagaming. Um, and, and I have some, some thoughts on how we can connect it to borrowing brilliance. Uh, but I think it's a topic that's worth exploring a little bit more and really defining. I think there's a couple of different types of metagaming that are worth talking about. And, and then, you know, maybe there's a place for it in sixth edition (laughs) to a a certain type of metagaming. Did you know that there are other tabletop games than Dungeons and Dragons? Well, my name is Gavin, and I'm the host of Playing Out of Character, an actual play podcast that showcases different indie game systems. We play all these indie tabletops using goofs and spooks to tell our stories. Arc 1 features an improvisational take on Urban Shadows. Next up is Shadows of the Demon Lord. If that piques your interest, look for Playing Out of Character, a Darkmoor podcast show on your favorite podcatcher. Yeah. And frankly, a lot of times, because you mentioned like, John, you like seem to know all these stats and all these monsters just off the top of your head. So you know how to strategize against them. I've never had my enjoyment of a combat lessened because I know about a monster, which is the implication of the metagaming warning in all of the different D&D materials that somehow If I know that monster's got a plus eight strength, but a plus zero dex, me targeting its dex is somehow going to 
ruin the story or I'm just trying to win at D&D. No, I'm trying to win the combat. Like, that's the point. So, and especially if the DM is doing a good job describing it, oh, this is a big lumbering beast, but it's taking him a while and he seems kind of unstable. Well, then yeah, I'm going to target their decks. <laughs> like it, it, the description is matching their mechanics that I know about. So the interplay of what resources do we use? How do the dice fall? That to me, that part of it is the exciting part, not just trying to discover what its weakness is and getting killed halfway through trying to figure out the DM's twist so they get the joy of being able to pull one over on us. It it all comes back to, I think, a power dynamics thing. And that's why a lot of times as a DM, I'm super open to my players about the descriptions because I want them to figure it out. It's not an offense if they figure it out too early. If they do, sometimes I'm just genuinely impressed with how they were able to put things together. So anyway, that's my rant about monsters. <laughs> Yeah, we've been notoriously bad at putting things together. So I think you're pretty safe. <laughs> like the the uh, the session where you gave us the entire plot of the session as a as a play, like a theater play. And then it still took us hours to figure out what was going on. Uh, anyway, that was not a brilliant brilliant session uh but we got there we got there eventually uh so all right so i think we're gonna move on to character creation now so the main topics we're gonna hit i'll still ask you them individually but we'll hit race class backgrounds and then leveling and ability so starting out what would you build the the race structure around what would be your core principles in that and it may relate to the other things but if there's stuff that's specifically that then we'll we'll take them in a progression i think first and i am not sure how this will be received but it'll be fun to find out i would actually make each of the races a little more generic so that that way they can fit in more custom worlds so most of the time it's already kind of there you know you've got dwarves elves humans orcs they tend to be able to fit in a lot of different places. But then you start seeing terms like tiefling, yonti, triton that are very D&D specific and largely very Faerunian specific. And they'll say, you can have these in your custom world, of course. But of course, the reason they're using such specific terms is to protect product identity to make sure that nobody else is going to steal their great ideas. I, I get the business part. I respect that part. And if it were genuinely up to me, I would have um, a set of very generic options with features that are separated by the unique biologies and giving examples of some cultures that might emerge from that, but making it very clear that you have the freedom as the DM and the world builder, you have the freedom as the player to create a story that doesn't necessarily match that. One of the things that I've liked that they've done recently is free up ability score increases. So instead of like all dwarves get plus two constitution and plus two strength or something, it's like, no, you get a plus two and a plus one that you put wherever. I, I really like that. What I don't like is being told you're an elf, so you have to be an archer or anything like that. Or elven culture is this because the book says it. And the D&D designers have been very upfront with we wanted to start people with archetypes so it'd be easier to get into it, but they they have permission to change it. 
and still is not as clearly channeled as the player's handbook and the actual text in the product. So the intended accompanying explanation is not as easily found as the text. So more people are bound by the text. So what I would do is I would put that explanation in with the text to give people that permission and create unique characters. So I feel like we're back to the same thing we were talking about with the monsters of kind of a mix and match setup where there are some base things that make a dwarf a dwarf and make an elf an elf. But then when it comes to culture, it's almost like the backgrounds that we have for character creation where you can pick you know, it gives the DM some ideas of how they can insert um, different cultures. Now I can see where they, it would be a whole lot easier to get people into it to have like a preset thing. So I'm not sure exactly how this would work. Uh, there may be something, everything's so digital nowadays. It may be something where sixth edition is an online thing where your DM goes in and there is a platform that helps them build a reference doc and they, it, it allows them to mix and match different cultural backgrounds to different types of uh, races. And then they send that to their players. And now you have like a customized PHB for your world, for the game that you're going to play. So you can choose how much custom, well, not custom, but how much mix and match versus stock material you want to use. God, this is where I wish we had a sponsor because I'd be like, that's a great segue to talk about World Anvil. Have you tried World Anvil? And just because there are, there are a few, they're not as in depth as we were talking about, but they're, I don't know, it just would have been funny. Um, but yeah, that's what I got for races. That mix and match idea, I think, is going to be kind of a theme as we move through character creation. I think that D&D is, again, there's a reason it's selling well. It is accessible. A lot of old school gamers are kind of upset at how accessible it is. It's not real D&D. It's not specific enough. It's not, you know, it's not like it was in the 90s, like you were mentioning earlier. And Still, I think that the system could be so much more useful if there were, like you said, preset archetypes for someone just trying to get into it, but also more generic, customizable options for people who have been in it and really want to tinker and make their own specific thing that is against the archetypes in some kind of way. So we covered races. So now we're on to classes, including how you would handle multi-classing. And this is actually the other thing that made me think of this question was you mentioning in a podcast with Ian about having only five classes. And I forget what the, it was, it was like combining the magic classes and having more subclasses. There was something to that effect that you were talking about with him. Um, so what would you do with classes and multi-classing? Okay, that five classes idea, I actually tried. And I'm like, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought it'd be. <laughs> like nice. everything. I think with classes, I do like the archetypes that exist. I like the cleric. I like the wizard, the rogue, all the different ones. I don't think I would want to get rid of having archetypal classes. I would want to adjust the power scaling because there are an unfortunately high number of classes that are too powerful front-loaded and then you don't get enough 
after say fifth or seventh level to stick with them. Some of them scale better than others. So Druid, Cleric, Bard, Wizard scale pretty well, levels one through 20. But Barbarian, Rogue, (laughs) Warlock, all those classes, the first two to five levels are awesome. And then the more you stick with it, you're sitting there going, wow, that uh, that single class wizard is doing a lot more than I am. So I think that the other thing I would really want to do with the classes is give very concrete spammable bonus actions for each of them. And it doesn't even have to be something big, but like you said, for the barbarian, it might be getting to do an extra attack as a bonus action or the ability to dash toward an enemy as a bonus action. Rogue mathematically is not way super more powerful than say like a fighter or a barbarian. It feels like it is because you get your attack action and then you can bonus action, dash, disengage, hide, steady aim. And then you also get your movement on top. So it feels like you're doing a whole lot. This was actually one of the illusions with Monk. I used to really like the Monk because it had this kind of janky action economy that was very customizable. But also, if you look at the math, Monk does no damage and has a bad armor class and a bad hit hit point thing. It's just mathematically worse than all of the other classes. But it always felt like you were doing a lot and it felt like a cool class to play. So back to that concept of the the minor action and the rogue, I think, is a good example where those minor actions, bonus actions, are very appropriate for that type of character. So the rogue is supposed to be stealthy and quick and agile and those match it. So why wouldn't the barbarian have something like that that it could do? So instead of dashing or hiding or disengaging, it can, I think you've mentioned shoving or, you know, or maybe it can grapple or, you know, make it all has to be in balance. And I'm not, I'm talking off the top of my head. So these things may not be perfectly balanced as we're spitballing ideas, but having each character or each uh, class's bonus action be like the rogue, where it has a couple of things that it can do just as a baseline that are appropriate for a tanking character or a spellcasting character or a long distance character, you know, whatever your your class is, whatever archetype you're trying to speak towards. So the answer is, first, a lot of times, the more mathematically powerful features are passive. So it's like your armor class gets to this kind of bump, your damage gets this kind of bump. So you're not activating something, you just have better stats is the theory anyway. And then, of course, when you get into feats and certain race options, you get bonus actions from that. What's weird is if you look at feats in the player's handbook, it says these are optional rules as if they're some kind of add on. But to make the most out of your character, they're required. So that's the thing that I think is interesting for bonus actions. I would either take them out of the class progression. So no class gets bonus actions, but also every class can get feats that then determine their bonus action going back to that matching concept. So it's like, yeah, I'm a rogue. I'm going to want to pick this mobility feat that lets me dash as a bonus action, or I'm a barbarian. I want to be tough. I want to shove as a bonus action. But then that also allows for some weird builds where it's like, yeah, I'm a barbarian, but what if I want to hide as a bonus action? That now creates this strange concept that might actually work really well depending on the specifics of your party composition. It's why I I always loved playing with Zach, just to shout out my man Zach, 
because a lot of times he would come to the table with these just quite a, a weird builds. And I'd be like, you're taking the charger feet. And then it would work in play, which was always really cool to see how it was maybe not the most quote unquote min maxed optimized build, but it was fun to play with. And I think that's the key thing is when you allow everyone to get a bonus action, it's more fun to play. It's more fun to play off of each other. So a lot of these bonus action things exist in the game already in the form of feats or whatever. I would just like to have a cleaner system of how to acquire bonus actions for your character. My question off of that starts to bridge into leveling and abilities, which might bounce us around a little bit. Um, but I'm so I always feel torn between ASI and feats. Would you have it so that there's you're not having to make the choice where you can kind of get both eventually? Like have there be more sprinkled in upgrades as you level? I don't know if this will answer your question, but this is what Wizards is already looking at and probably what they're going to do for 2024. And it's an idea I don't think is a bad idea, which is right now, the way the background rules are, you get two skill proficiencies and then two in a combination of tool vehicle language proficiencies as part of that wizards is experimenting with adding in every character can get a feat as part of their background too and i think that little little thing would add a whole lot to a character and it would make that choice a lot less painful because <laughs> a lot of times you're like oh, i'm i'm falling behind in terms of my stats to try to sort out my action economy and then you get the mathematicians optimizers that are like, well, yeah, you get a minus five to the attack roll, but the plus 10 damage bonus is worth it because we did the statistical math. Statistical math does not always lead to fun gameplay. <laughs> it leads to a justification for power scale balancing, but that doesn't mean your game is fun. And so I think that to make feats more about unlocking bonus actions, but also let every character pick the feat that they want to match to their character based on their background, I think that you can get much more interesting dynamic characters out of that. Does that help answer the question that you asked? I think so. Yeah. Cause I do always, I so often find that I want to do the fun feat thing, but how do I pass up making my main stat stronger? You know, like that just feels like, and I'm sure there are people that aren't as I, I'm I'm a very competitive-minded person, and I I le if there's numerical values involved, I'm going to try to go for maximum impact. That's just the way my brain is wired. So I I think it's fascinating that some people prioritize the role playing over effectiveness. Um, and I'm sure that's somewhat representative of their personality because I focus on being as effective as possible in my life. And that takes priority over other things. So the way that I build a character is the way that I live my life. Um, so it's not illogical or um, unrealistic to do that, I think. Um, but it, so that's, that's something that I get a little stuck on, but I, I get torn between effectiveness and fun and sometimes the feat is the effective choice and then I'll take it. But it's really hard to take the fun choice when I know that that's going to mean I'm not going to have fun down the road because I'm rolling dice and not hitting anything and just feeling like I'm wasting turns. Absolutely. Like if we were to have 
if ever if I could dilute everything I'm talking about here with whatever changes I'd make to D&D, I would probably sum it up as right now in D&D, there are too many better choices and worse choices. And to me, that's not an interesting decision. I've had many arguments about the fact that just the worst choice doesn't make it interesting. I'd rather for feet specifically level everything out. So you have a few viable choices, but the different interactions are what make the gameplay deep. So a barbarian with the dash bonus action or a wizard with the hide bonus action, like being able to switch bonus actions around and stuff, but there's not like the keen mind feat, which is just bad. And then the great weapon master feat, which is awesome. It's you're, you're not looking at better and worse options. You're looking at all sorts of viable options. And honestly, I, I do have faith that the wizards design team knows that they actually released a survey recently about what do you think of the player's handbook feats? And I am sure they got some feedback, but they also didn't know how their game was going to be played until five years of play testing and feedback and all that good stuff. Then they started, you saw a switch in the way they were designing everything based on the feedback they were receiving. Yeah. Well, and there's also the evolution of the community as well. And which is connected to the evolution of greater society and culture. So like we were talking about with the whole good versus evil thing, everything felt very good versus evil in the nineties. There were the amount of bullying in TV shows. When I go back and watch the things I watched as a kid, I'm like, Oh my, this is, this is intense. You know, like this was, this was awful. And we thought it was funny, you know? And I just remember salute your shorts, which, uh, you know, if you're a millennial like me, you might remember. And they did this thing with an awful waffle. And when someone was, when someone was uh, doing something that the group did not like, it was kids at a summer camp and you never saw what the awful waffle was, but it involved a tennis racket and ketchup and they would like rip up the person's shirt and expose their stomach. And then, and then that's what it would cut away. But like, that was like acceptable behavior. So that was kind of, that's the framework that D and D was built in was in the eighties and nineties and through all of that. So now culture and society has evolved and quickly if we look at the last two to six years of what's happened in our in our country and in the world and just all of the things there has been rapid change and of course the dnd stuff is not going to keep up with that because it's static it's it's fifth edition they can't go and you know it's it's all in a book so you can't just not like the internet where you can just make a quick text change anytime you want so they, they kind of got a little stuck um, and I'm sure that there are a lot of things that they are looking at because there has been so much cultural change recently. So that that's like the key thing is a lot of times, even in classes right now, you see this class is significantly worse than this class at this certain level span. Like warlock is significantly better than wizard between levels two and four, let's say, but Warlock is significantly worse than Wizard between levels 16 and 20. I'm just throwing out random things like I, I haven't done the deep analysis. But rather than that, I would rather have distinct, clear options that are strong and have their place across a level span. So we're not saying that there is this dip in power and this class is now better than the others. And to go into multi-classing, 
My problem, I think, with multi-classing now is it's supposed to be the way that you customize your character's mechanical performance. But because of that, a lot of time... Oh, go ahead. I just want to ask the question off of what you're just saying. Do you think that imbalance is intentional so that each class has some sort of arc that's like a little different? So each class has a moment to shine? Or do you think that that was just something that didn't reveal itself until the game had been played millions of times over years. I think it's a little of both. You keyed in on something. I realized I was muted. So nobody heard me going, yes, yes. When you're like D and D was rooted in these eighties, nineties, good versus evil traditions. And one of the things, and I'm pretty sure here, I'm going like 95%. I'm getting this history, right? D&D was based off of a certain genre of fantasy called sword and sorcery. And part of that is wizards would start out weak, but the more they lived, the more powerful they would get to the point they'd want to rule the world. Fighters would start out strong, but over time, age took its toll and they would become less effective as they got older because that's how the human body breaks down without assistance of magic. So in original D&D, there was a very asymmetrical power dynamic intentionally of fighters start out stronger than magic users, but at a certain point, magic users lap fighters. And it's, there are like, I don't know if you want to call them horror stories or extreme examples of third edition of the opposite being true of wizards can do like 15 things during their turn and fighters are like, I try to hit it. I miss. (laughs) So you're saying there's a whole storyline behind the class arc that has faded into the background, but is still influencing gameplay. Yes. So, and the thing about fifth edition that I think would help give some perspective to, I have what I want out of it, this, but there was a certain design idea is that third edition was the first edition wizards of the coast got to design. Then they tried fourth edition where they codified a lot of things and they made it a little more video game-like, and people's complaint was that it didn't feel D&D enough. So 5th edition, the attempt was to respect the entire legacy of the game. And so you see these weird artifacts of what the game used to be in the 80s that aren't necessarily appropriate today. And I think a lot of 5th edition's greatest design strengths are when it lets go of that legacy. And I think that one of the things you see from the legacy is this uneven power distribution as a story, as part of the class's story. And unfortunately, that's a great idea. But if not everybody knows that history or is on board with it up front, what it turns out as, oh, they're more powerful than I am. And I feel like I suck. So the game is less fun. So it doesn't matter if you're honoring the game's history, if it's less enjoyable to play, in my eyes anyway. And for some people, this is this is a John assumption moment. I think that a lot of people have fun with the idea of honoring that legacy. So they convince themselves that this game is more fun if you're being historically accurate with it. And the reality is often not that. Yeah, and historically accurate is only fun if you lived the history or you know the history. So if you're trying to bring new people into the game and the history is not clearly being shared, then it just looks like poor design. 
as opposed to being like there being that story reason in the background. It just looks like someone didn't pay attention and left things unbalanced. So that's all, that is all very fascinating. Um, We should probably get to, did we talk about multi-classing? No, we, we, let's talk about multi-classing. Yeah. My (laughs) chief complaint with multi-classing is it's supposed to be the way that players can customize using different parts of different classes customize their character's mechanical performance to fit a specific vision in their head that is not covered by the main archetypes in an official book. My problem with it is oftentimes because you're taking parts of different archetypes, you end up either with features that you don't want your character to have or slightly off. So for example, one of the characters I would love to build in D&D is Karama from Yu Yu Hakusho, who was the intelligent spellcaster, but he used plant magic. So it's kind of like Druid, but he doesn't wild shape. I don't want a wild shape feature. And also he's not a wisdom caster. He is definitely an intelligence caster. So because D&D is so archetypal, you can create Karama kind of, but technically he's a wisdom caster. And so there are all these little details that are slightly off. So to go back to the mix and match idea, my, my idea is basically to have a bunch of different features that you can pick for your character without all the extra bloat and without all the extra baggage and really fine tune what you want. So for example, I am a huge proponent for picking your spellcasting modifier. So it's not, I'm a bard, so I'm charisma and I'm a wizard, so I'm intelligence. It's what do you see the story of your character being and which of those ability scores makes sense? I could totally see an intelligence bard, someone who's really good at like psychic magic and maybe not super charismatic and they're really, really smart and they might even be kind of like a spy character. So they use the bard mechanics, but really it's coming from their intelligence or even wizard comes from the term wizened. So why can't wizards be a wisdom caster that just draw in magical energies from around them and then channel them but it's not an intellectual pursuit. It's almost a spiritual pursuit. Um, the other one that I, I really have fallen in love with recently is the idea of an intelligence cleric, not someone who just is like, I channel God and then guiding bolt, but someone who has like maybe a religious coda or certain virtues that they intellectually grapple with, but they cast their cleric magic like a wizard. So along with that, There are certain generic features in the game that I think could be the foundation to a lot of different cool characters that are unfortunately locked behind certain archetypes. One of those being expertise. So I think that if your character wants to be an expert at something, they shouldn't need a level of rogue to accomplish that. And they shouldn't need to sacrifice an ASI to get a feat to create this very specific build. It might be that your character has like expertise, but they can only pick another kind of minor feature to go with it. So the idea just being that you have some of these floating traits and as you level, maybe, you know, this trait is a lot more powerful. So you don't get it until your character level is later, but unlocking the features from the archetypes to truly create a specific character. And I could definitely see where there needs to be a lot of play testing and nuance obviously we're just out here spitballing ideas but i do like this idea because i have run into that where i had a character idea in my mind and i wanted them to be a certain way 
but then the way I had to set up their stats to then make them effective meant, you know, if I wanted them to be a deceptive person for whatever reason, but charisma needed to be a dump stat because of their particular class, you know, it just, it ends up kind of being messy, you know, and you don't end up with the person that you wanted. You're, you're limited by those very specific, those, the, the six greater ability scores make it so that you can't use the nuanced 20 scores to, to really flesh out the role playing side of your character. Yeah, that's a key thing I want to address. And this is going to be kind of a minor point because I do want to touch on equipment. Um, A lot of times you imagine your character having a certain kind of fighting style or weapon that's a part of their fighting identity. And then the DM decides, well, you get this magic sword and it's just better than anything you have. So even though you envisioned a spear user, you have to trade it in for a sword because that's what's going to help you be effective, like you were mentioning. So one thing I do know, this was from the mouth of Mike Merles, who is one of the designers, the weapons table in the PHB is archetypal, not literal. So the idea is they kind of came up with what the major iconic weapons were, but those, those cosmetics are meant to be adjusted. If instead of a long sword, you want a katana, go for it. I would love for them to include that explanation with the actual weapons table. Also, I think as, again, part of creating the person you want, I think that's a brilliant way to put it, allowing players to create their own magic items based on the weapons that they like. So, and we do this in Gearus. This is something I might even contemplating having as a sellable product. But the idea that you're customizing your weapons damage type, you're giving it a little bit of fire or a little bit of ice or something like that, but you're not having to replace your weapon because you defeated the dragon and you loot a new sword, but that way it stays in line with your the vision that you have for your character without having to compromise based on the random tables the DM rolls on. Yeah, I've definitely been in situations where we got a super cool something or other from some kind of adventure and no one really wanted the thing because it didn't match any of the players or the characters the way they were built. And then it's kind of silly that we're all trying to, you know, do you want the plus two, plus two sword? You know, I don't really need it. I kind of like who I am. (laughs) It, It just, it's so silly that something that should be such a boon is suddenly not wanted. But uh, so the mixing and matching that currently exists in fifth edition is backgrounds, which has kind of been our template for a lot of different things. What would you see for backgrounds in your sixth edition? No change. I love them. (laughs) The only change I could see is what I mentioned earlier with Wizards of the Coast, having giving every character a feat as part of their background instead of the role playing feature. I think the role playing features are dumb. They are presented as mechanical, but they're largely flavor. And I really never had a character say, I have the shelter, the faithful feature, meaning this. And the fact that Everything else in the customizing your background section, which is really what the designers have said, that's what they want their players to use. They don't want their players saying, I'm an acolyte or a soldier. They want them to customize their background. To create that feature, the only advice is like, make something up that makes sense. 
And I think that lack of guidance can lead to a lot of confusion or a lot of frustration. So rather than that narrative feature, just saying you get a feat, simplifies so many things and makes all these characters feel more effective anyways. Yeah, and I can see where in the the customizing a background little portion of the handbook, it I feel like it kind of gets lost in the, the flow of things. And also, if there is that, I didn't even realize that there was like an embedded feature. I never really pay attention to it. Um, but uh, <laughs> I like the idea of kind of systemizing that with a feat, which you said they were talking about. Um, but also, how do you get that if you customize the way it's set up currently? How do you get that fun little feature that if you're customizing the background? Because now it's something you have to negotiate with your DM. You also have to try to be creative to figure out what it would be. And not everyone is creative in that way. And then you're going to have differences of opinions. And, you know, there's the potential for the dynamics to get thrown off in your party comp. And there's just so many, you know, things that could complicate it. Uh, the way it is currently set up. So if you just did feat, uh, feat instead of feature, then you would solve that, I think. And it would be much easier to just kind of build your own background. Um, and then it is nice when I'm trying to come up with a character idea. I think that's when backgrounds are most helpful. I found I would usually start from, at least early on, I would start from the backgrounds and kind of flipping through and then I wouldn't use them specifically, but they would start to get the creative juices flowing and then I would come up with something from there. So from a character creation inspiration standpoint, they they do help because they provide this big old list of different types of characters you can come up with. I don't remember which interview it was, but I specifically remember Jeremy Crawford saying on camera, it was a mistake to lay out the book so that customizing your background was so easily missed. He like if he he has said if he were to go back to the player's handbook, he would highlight that, change the template, change everything so that it was clear that's the preferred method. Everything else are examples. And that's why, you know, when you first asked me about this, I was thinking about, well, why 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 don't we just get rid of archetypal classes? Why don't we just have this character creation, you know, undo the the re the reins. And then as I thought about it, I thought about what you just said. How many people find it helpful to just have an archetype to generate an idea? And that's why I wouldn't want to get rid of the archetypes and I wouldn't want to also be bound to them. I do think that it's a both and where you can both have an archetypal character progression that gives you a satisfying experience. And if you have specific ideas that there should be a system that allows you to combine generic traits and features that can help you create a specific character that you have in mind. I think the core of Dungeons and Dragons is puzzle and encounter design. I'll draw from favorite movies, video games, books, anything to create a one-of-a-kind play experience. When you start with a solid framework, all you need is to grab your best friends and hilarity ensues naturally. I'm Sully, dungeon master and host of the podcast How Friends Roll, a fifth edition actual play podcast of micro campaigns featuring a rotating cast of characters. Come join our table, 
How Friends Roll is available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so I think the the last big topic that really is in the player's handbook that's worth asking a quick question about, I think you're up to three podcasts talking about religion relatively recently in the last, you know, four months or so. So we don't have to go deep into it. But what would you set up as the boilerplate way to handle gods and potentially planes of existence? Because there's a lot of, of course, in your custom world, you can set up all of these things. But like we touched on in the other podcast, if you're, if you've got a new group trying to get into playing trying to get into DMing. There is so much to do. It's it's so nice to have, even what you're just saying about backgrounds, it is so nice to have just a boilerplate starting spot where when we're all newbies, there is a written set of rules that we can follow and agree upon, and then we can allow ourselves to learn and grow our expertise and evolve from there. Um, but you need you need a starting point. There needs, I think having a pantheon in the book is a helpful thing, but how would you set it up so that it resolves the challenges that we've talked about that, and you've talked to Ian about in numerous other podcasts? So the first thing, this is going to reference something I talked about a little bit earlier, which is that uh, model of the outer planes in the back of the player's handbook in that appendix is something that Jeremy Crawford saw in an older player's handbook, thought it was cool and slapped it in there. So again, it wasn't included from a design standpoint. It was included to honor D&D's legacy and how it had always handled planar travel and gods and such. When it comes to those appendices listing different pantheons, again, it was just like, we're spitballing ideas. And in the long run, I think it's actually done some harm not to have a cleaner generic option that was kind of obvious. One of the things I think I would default to is actually a suggestion that's in the Dungeon Master's Guide. And I default this again because religion can be a sticky topic. I love the idea of domains representing philosophies or ideologies. And I think that it would be a good idea to say in most D&D worlds, clerics also worship a deity. Here are some examples, but you don't include pantheons in the base player handbook. You include them in the specific setting guides that they belong to. In the appendices, there are different tables that say the deities of the Forgotten Realms, deities of Greyhawk, deities of Dragonlance. And I think a lot of players will start to think these are the official ones I can pick from. But then I know a lot of DMs that love to play custom worlds. And when you say, well, I got this out of the back of the player's handbook, so it's official, right? I think that can create a lot of weird tensions at the table. So if you default to religious domains, clerics and paladins really, are based off of certain philosophies and abstract ideas. Here are some examples of different deities that represent those ideas or portfolios. And then later, like, let's say we're going to play a Forgotten Realms game. There's a pantheon of available gods in the Forgotten Realms setting book. Now everyone is clear about the options we can all pick from. I just think that including the, pan the different pantheons in the appendices, it makes it 
far too easy for DMs or players to create assumptions about what the available deities are. So whereas I think it would be much more helpful to save that for specific setting books so that everyone knows the rules they're playing by. I wonder if it's a design thing to where there needs to be a little bit more of a loud, you know, here's how to use this section, you know, thing at the start, like you were saying, you know, looking, I'm looking at my player's handbook and what you were saying about the backgrounds, the customizing a background, it is, it's like wrapped around an image and split between two pages and so easy to glaze over. And then looking at the, the gods of the multiverse in, in our current society that is trained to skim from all of the internets that we have uh it's very easy to just skip over the page that has lots of thick paragraphs and just jump right into like oh look at all the fun tables like you know and then words start jumping out like trickery and you know tempest and you know all of this and then i start getting sucked into what sounds fun to me rather than how does this work (laughs) and how will it work at the current table that I am sitting at. So I I think if there is just a little bit of more um, in your face guidance of what to do, and I'm not even sure exactly how you would do that. I just know that with the way that technology has trained my brain to skim it's really easy to miss some of this stuff in the way the book is set up currently, even though it's set up beautifully, it's still not skimmable. And it's not also set up as a sit down and read it cover to cover book. I know you have, but it's not designed for that. It's designed to be a workbook is what it feels like to me. So I try to read it more like a workbook, which bounces me around. And then I miss important elements. So I, again, I, I, don't know exactly how I would design it differently. Um, oof, as I flip to the spell section, I do have things I would love to say about how to design that better, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but I think there some of these things could be solved by the design of the, the player's handbook. Well, and I, I just think that, first of all, I said it earlier, I rag on Pathfinder as a system, but in terms of how they organize and design their information, it's way better than this it's pretty universally agreed upon to be better organized and better design and i think it would just remove a lot of confusion to take those pantheons out of the player's handbook and put them where they belong so i think that honestly the place for them is the dungeon master's guide you're creating your world here are some templates of different pantheons to draw from so go ahead and again mix and match pick the ones you think sound interesting and then present them to your players at a session zero, which when this was written, session zero was nowhere near a concrete enough concept that they even included it. They didn't include any information about session zeros until Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, which was like two or three years ago. So like you said, and that that came about because of the change in the community, because our culture has evolved so fast over such a relatively short period of history. Yeah, so with with all this criticism of the design, I do want to say that I do not envy the team that had to try to figure out how to design and make accessible all of this information. It is it is a lot that is happening in not a big book for all of the versatility that it allows. 
And, and another thing is, you know, we're talking about ways to organize the information differently. And the, I just checked and the player's handbook is copyright 2014. Um, and D and D beyond came out in 2017. So I don't, I'd have to do a lot of research to figure out how much was available online, how much of D and D was really out there, you know, back when they were constructing fifth edition. But I bet you, I can guarantee you that the internet was not as versatile an option for D and D as it is now. So they were trying to do a lot within books. So they had to make, you know, they, you, you don't want everyone to have to buy the DMS guide if they're just a player, but you also need the player to have access to the Pantheon information. But what, what are you going to have your DM do? Go make photocopies of it. And then like hand out the Pantheon that they're using to their players. Like you just, it, things start to get kind of complicated. So we now have this resource of the internet that has just exploded in its versatility. So I could definitely see if, if one were to come out with a sixth edition, if the team were to come out with a sixth edition, there are a lot of free and accessible ways that you can make this information, like keep it simplistic and focused in the book and then have complementary online resources for players and DMs to communicate on the things that are a little bit more custom and specific. And now you're reducing the, um, the potential for Pantheon confusion and that type of thing. So what's really interesting, again, quick history lesson, fourth edition was designed to very specifically interact with digital tool sets that Wizards was trying to put out there, wholly rejected as a system because it didn't feel D&D enough. So it would make sense that they would then go back to the books because they knew that's what their customers liked. And then now that the players are interested, they're warming up to these digital assets. And so it's kind of like, there's a random example, but the Switch is super awesome. It's super popular. They tried the same concept with the Wii U, but the Wii U was like panned. It was like, oh, that's stupid. And nobody bought it and there weren't any games for it. So it just needed a failed iteration in order to build onto a more accessible one. Yeah. And looking it up online, fourth edition came out in 2007, which meant if they were trying to do things digitally, they were they were early adopters. They were really diving into something that was still... Being, I mean, I know we were all on the internet in 2007, but it wasn't like it is now. It wasn't in everybody's pocket on their smartphone the way it is now. Just the the accessibility of the internet and again, the versatility. And I don't even want to pretend like I know what these words mean, but I'm sure as we're starting to move towards Web3 and all of that kind of crazy stuff, you know, there's all kinds of things unlocking that you know, because it's been this gradual thing, we're all like, obviously, why wouldn't you have done it this way? But it wasn't, the technology wasn't available. Literally. The acceptance wasn't available. I just looked it up. The iPhone, which I know you mentioned earlier, came out in June of 2007. So, right. and that was really a huge change in how we connect to the internet and how we connect with each other. Yeah, so they were just early. They were just yeah, they were a little too early. The technology wasn't there yet. And, you know, Wizards of the Coast just bought D&D Beyond. That was a huge news thing in the TTRPG space. So it'll be really interesting to see how they use that technology in the future. 
All right. So final question that I don't know if you're actually going to have much of an answer to because of just how much we've talked about the interrelationship between, you know, the DM and the, the player side. But is there anything specific for DMing that you would include or build in or build around for your Keys to the Kingdom sixth edition that goes beyond the stuff we've already talked about? Because I know a lot of it has touched on it already. Yeah, I think that first we're moving beyond the player's handbook. I know when you said keys to the kingdom, we were kind of talking about the player's handbook. I think the DM stuff would go really into the dungeon master's guide. I think that the fifth edition dungeon master's guide is, if I'm going to be frank, kind of a mess uh, because they throw all these random concepts around and there's not really a strong through line where if I'm a dungeon master, I'm not opening up my dungeon master's guide very often because it's just, if we could criticize the visual design of the player's handbook, the dungeon master's guide is even worse. I think the thing I would really focus on is for DMs, how to build a clean functional adventure. Because if you open up the dungeon master's guide, the first thing they talk about is developing your world and the cosmos and these big high concepts. And then it's like, how do you, get into the nitty gritty of designing a town and a village. And they, they do all these things when it's like, but what are your players going to see at the table? So it ends up advising you to prep all these things that the players might not even want to interact with. So instead of starting from this bigger place, guiding players through functional adventures, I think the other thing that would really help DMs is having cleaner adventure modules, which I think Wizards has kind of, That's been what I've seen the trend being as they release more and more of the official adventures. But rather than creating these big open campaigns that can encompass tons of possibilities, something like Curse of Strahd is a really good example, I think, of where it's a fairly linear set of events with some choices where you can bounce between some different possibilities, but really... It's a very clean campaign with with a very specific theme and a very specific story with a very clear ending. So that way you can put it to the side and move on to the next thing or move on to your custom thing or whatever you want to do. So I just think kind of the DM support tools, I think, would be more helpful than just the higher random toolkit. It's like giving someone tools, but not telling them the purpose of them or how they're used. So I I really think that the best thing to be would be, again, highlighting the intention as well as what the tool actually is. Well, I think the answer here is obvious and Wizards of the Coast needs to hire us to spearhead sixth edition using all of the ideas we talked about today and constructing the DM's guide around your seven baby steps and all of our absolutely brilliant idea (laughs) because we have it all figured out clearly uh but obviously i just and actually the thing i i wanted to say to finish it out is i would love to hear feedback from people um on you know and everything and anything that we've talked about so far. I'm enjoying the conversations that we're having but i would love to hear what other people think Um, And I'd also love to hear brilliance that our listeners have 
have heard, you know, even if it's squids casting mirror image, I think it would be fun because there is so much brilliance and interesting things to be curious about out, out there. And like I mentioned at the start of the podcast, we have both said to each other how we have a backlog of brilliant things we've observed. And that's, and again, it's not us being brilliant. It's just brilliant, interesting things we've observed in the world. And it's because we know that we're going to have to answer this question every week. And because the question is in our head, we have recognized more. I know for me personally, there's just been more cool stuff than I can even write down because I'm thinking of it. And that's, that's what matters is there's, there's brilliance and beauty all around us in this world. We just have to open ourselves up to it. And, and that was why we start with the questions and, and I'd love to hear it from our listeners. Absolutely. So if you want to let us know brilliant things you've observed, or if you have feedback for us, feel free to either email us at dragonmindpodcast at gmail.com or stop by our discussion channel in the Darkmore Podcast community discord. Both of those in the description below. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Borrowing Brilliance and Dragon Mind are brought to you by Incendium D&D, which you can follow on social media with the links in the description below. Our theme song, The Lounge, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmorepodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. I strive to defend Nui Zatalos and live up to my role as a spiritual leader. I journey to increase my knowledge of the cusp and cosmos. It has been prophesied that there is destiny in my blood. I fight for the honor of the name Steadyhand and the great kingdom of Firdirth. I wanted to find my true place in the world. I will protect my home and family at all costs. A young ruler's grasp for power threatens an already fractured world. Meet the heroes in Arc 2 of Advantage, a 5th edition D&D audio drama. Find us on all podcast apps.